This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Einstein, James Dean, Brooklyn's got a winning team, Davy Crockett, Peter Pan, Elvis Presley, Disneyland, Bardo, Budapest, Alabama, Chris Jeff, Princess Grace. Princess Grace, you little princess. Grace Kelly. <laughs> what else am I going to say? I've got to stop gurring. <laughs> <laughs> Hello again, and welcome to episode 53 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's pop opus as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I am Tom Fordyce. Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Princess Grace. Mm. Princess Grace. Now, what is your baseline information, Tom? (laughs) As always, Katie, my baseline information comes from music. Uh, In this case, a huge song from, I think, one hit wonder, Mika. I don't know if you're familiar with Mika's work. Quite falsetto for me to sing. Huge hit in 2006 or 7 with a song called Grace Kelly, in which Mika says he would like to be like Grace Kelly, but her looks are so sad. I don't know if I find Grace Kelly's look so sad. She's just the platonic ideal of patrician beauty. She's sparkly. She is very sparkly. She does have a knowing little curl to the corner of her smiling lips. But, you know, the thing that I always remember about Princess Grace, as she then became, was that she had a couple of wild child, reckless daughters, or at least... Did she ever? Well, Caroline and then Stephanie was the one, because I guess she was like maybe a little bit older than I was, so I was very aware of her. Um, And then, so wild child Stephanie, Grace's daughter, became a wild adult. And here's a fun fact, Tom. She took up with a married circus elephant trainer (laughs) in 2001 and ended up moving into a circus caravan with her three kids. That's quite the change from the palace on the cliffs of Monaco. Quite a change, and I don't know if you'll be surprised to hear that it did not last. What? It, but what did you expect? She was a princess, he was an elephant trainer, but I hear he was good with his trunk. <laughs> I heard that she then married a Portuguese acrobat, so the circus had clearly got into her blood. Yeah, she was a little bit of a circus road dog, I think. <laughs> well, Katie, we could talk all day about the offspring of <laughs> our topic today, but thankfully we have someone far wiser than you and I. And that is Professor Kate Williams, the historian, author and television presenter. Kate is a professor of modern history at Reading University. She is an expert in modern history and in royal constitutional affairs. She is also a big Grace Kelly fan. Kate, welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire. Thank you so much. As you say, I'm a huge Grace Kelly fan. What was it about Grace that um, that first piqued your interest? Oh, can I, before we do that, can I give you one fact about Princess Stephanie? I thought yes, please. You know what I find fascinating about Princess Stephanie is that she, actually her pop career was really very successful. I think when oh. it was out, people used to say, oh, Princess Stephanie, you know, what kind of a pop singer was that? It's just a princess being a pop singer. But apparently both of her hits sold two million <laughs> copies. So really Princess Stephanie was the Madonna of Europop. Oh, yeah. And didn't she work with Michael Jackson? Yeah. Recorded in the closet with Michael Jackson. Oh, really? And uh, was a top 10 in the United States. But she was 
credited as Mystery Girl, not Princess Stephanie. So it's really quite a life. Then that, then circus, then acrobats, then everything. You know what? If you're a princess in a tiny principality, you could just get away with whatever. Record with Michael Jackson, be a Europop star, run off to the circus. I mean, do it all. Go on all the rides. (laughs) So what was it that did pique your interest, Kate? I'm fascinated by Grace Kelly. And what really fascinates me is the fact that everything about her seems like the fairy tale the beautiful girl, the actress, the Oscar winner, who then goes to marry a fairy tale prince and lives happily ever after. But that's what the surface is. But underneath it is really a story of darkness and secrets and really what it really means to be a princess in the 20th century. And it's not always pretty. That is a great opening, Katie, isn't it? I mean, if we needed any more excitement about this episode, I think that's just provided it. I have quite the nipple hard on and it's not just because it's a really freezing (laughs) studio that we're in right now and we're wearing borrowed clothes so you'll just have to take my word for it Tom I know you're looking for proof but I am wearing a heavy winter coat (laughs) to cover all sorts of lumps and bumps but getting back to the task at hand so Professor Kate let's talk about Grace Kelly a little bit of potted history big Hollywood star actually only did kind of a handful of movies. And even before she even got to Hollywood, she had kind of an interesting background in that she wasn't the usual ingenue struggling her way up through obscurity because she came from a socially prominent family. Can you tell us a little bit about her early history? Yes, that's it, Katie. And it's fascinating because she is one of the most celebrated American actresses of the 20th century. She will be famous for all her life. And yet she just did 11 films. That's it. It's really a tiny amount. And just as you say, she she came from this very wealthy family and into this hugely successful life and then gave it all up, gave it all up when she was 25 to marry Prince Rainier of Monaco. So what? it's really a fascinating life. And she was born in 1929, and she was born into this very wealthy Philadelphia family. Her father, he was a very successful builder. He was an Irish immigrant family, became an incredibly successful builder. The Depression battered most people's businesses, but not but not his. And he was so successful. He'd won golds in the Olympics for rowing. He actually became the national director of physical fitness during the World War II, but he was appointed by the president. So uh, really, he was uh, he was the ultimate alpha male. I think we can say that. Jack wow. Kelly was the ultimate alpha male. And so obviously, having a father like that is always going to be a challenge as a child. He had four children. They were, had this life of exercise and running around outside and Grace was very different she was an indoor child she liked to make up stories she liked to uh, read and she liked to sort of imagine events with her dolls so she was already quite a different child to the rest of her family and what is always interests me I always love family dynamics so she has uh, three siblings, a younger sister, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is everyone's favourite. Uh, a father says, when everyone says, gosh, Grace is doing well, isn't she? Uh, uh, Kelly's father will say, oh, well, what about Peggy? What about Peggy? She's the real successful oh. one. So it's really interesting how Grace was always seen as the a little bit of the no-hoper. And I think that is something that motivates her, something that keeps pushing her. The fact that 
as a child, she was always craving parental approval. And it sets a pattern, I think, in her life in terms of older men and also in terms of marrying Prince Rainier. I mean, how can you how can you not win your parents' approval of becoming a royal princess? Oh, my gosh. And her parents were not particularly supportive, were they, of her interest in getting on the stage, treading the boards and flouting herself in front of an audience. What did what did they think about that? A hundred percent no. So she was sent actually to a girls' school, which really specialised in in housewives. Really specialised in creating a housewife. That's what she was born for. It, it, it was a it was a, a school that talked a lot about the science and management of housewifery. So instead of all that, <laughs> Grace wanted to go and and be an actress. She auditioned for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and 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 then she she went off to to New York. Just a young girl, she went off to New York to set off to New York to be an actress and live in this incredible place, the Barbers and Hotel for Women. That was her father's condition. He said, okay, you can go to New York and try and be an actress, but you've got to live in the women's hotel. No men. Huh. So women's <laughs> hotel only. And, uh, it, it, you know, she, she goes off with this very young, just a teenager, and becomes a model and, and starts getting a break in theatre, which is what she wants. I find it's quite an interesting concept that you might be allowed as a young woman by your stentorian father to go into the performing arts, but only if you go to a place where there can be no men. The flaw with this plan is that if you are a man and you're after a woman, where better place to go than a (laughs) hotel where there are only women? Oh, Tom, it's one-stop shopping. And, you know, if you show up just in time for curfew, then you're locked in for the night. So it seems there's quite a few actresses who made their way through the doors of the Barbers Inn. So Lauren Bacall had stayed there, Rita Hayworth, Sylvia Plath had been there, Nancy Reagan. I'm not regarding this as a buffet as much as you are, Tom, but certainly (laughs) that was the done thing. You wanted to give the folks at home a sense of security that uh, you were being monitored, perhaps there was a chaperone. A lot of these ladies' hotels were run by nuns or they were seen as places where debutantes could respectfully stay without uh, parental supervision. I've actually stayed there myself in mm. uh, in early years when I was a young ballet student in my teen years going up to New York City. So I, I'm well acquainted with those sorts of establishments. Okay. And so Katie, when they say that no men are allowed beyond the first floor that's literally the first floor or figuratively the first floor well the first floor in america you know is the ground floor so pretty much step foot in the front uh vestibule and that's your lot then you might make a phone call from the ground floor and uh, arrange a date with your lady maybe at a corner ice cream shop but uh yeah all bets are off once you're outside on the street anything can happen and of course grace kelly was doing a lot of theater this is the thing that i didn't realize was before she got to hollywood and did her handful of movies all of which were pretty good um she was a pretty dab hand with the live theater live television work uh what can you tell us about this kate her ambition was not for the movies, it was for the theatre, that's what she desired. And when she started at the Barbizon, she uh, was a, both a model and, uh, and an actress, so she was in a lot of TV commercials. Uh, Bug Spray was one of her very, very good early female <laughs> commercials. And she was in a lot of theatre, so she got picked up for a lot of theatre actresses and she lots of, lots of different um, shows in the theatre and that's really where she got spotted so she was performing in Colorado when a producer saw her and thought that's the girl I want 
for High Noon, and that was her first film. So she really wow. was someone who wanted to be in the theatre. And in fact, when she's finally given a contract, a, a movie contract, uh, for seven years, she she makes a condition that every other year she'll be able to go to do the theatre and she will go to be able to go to New York because that's what she wants. And that really interests me that that although she's known primarily as a film actress, it was it was theatre that she really wanted to make a breakthrough in. Was theatre seen as more glamorous then, Kate, or was it just a personal preference? Probably more think, legit, I would have thought. I think the theatre was seen as more legit, definitely. And but certainly. Although Grace was a really hard-working person, took a lot of acting classes, it was generally thought that she was better in film because her voice didn't quite have the projectile quality it needed. So really, it was, even though what she didn't really want quite so much was, was what she was better at. Kate, what was her relationship like with Alfred Hitchcock? Because Hitchcock oh, yeah. seems to have gone from not being in any way a fan. He describes her performance in High Noon as rather mousy, which is not a compliment from a film director, to the point where he wants her to be his muse. He wants her to be his latest blonde bombshell in all his big pictures. Isn't that fascinating? So he sees her in High Noon when she is released in 1952 and... It was a successful film. Lots of reviewers thought it was a marvellous film. But he thinks she's mousy. And to be fair, it's not her best performance. You can tell she's nervous. She takes a lot of acting lessons after it. But really, after that, she does a screen test. And he's he completely changes his mind. And I think all power to Hitchcock, that he, he really is someone who doesn't have set ideas about what he likes and what he doesn't like. He sees her and says, OK, she's better now. And in fact, you know, it, she turns down on the waterfront so she can be in rear window. And that, I think, what a what a choice to make. What a rear choice. window or on the waterfront. I mean, wow. how can you possibly imagine where you're, what you're going to do? And she was she didn't really hesitate. She said to herself, no, I want to. I want to be in rear window. I don't want to be with Marlon Brando and on the waterfront. And you know, Hitchcock, they have three films together, um, Dial M for Murder, uh, Rear Window and To Catch a Thief. And they re- she's incredible. And I think that he really does draw out that real uh, dichotomy in her, in, in her personality, in her look between this perfect looking woman. In fact, he told the costume designer of one film to make her look like a piece of Dresden China. And he saw the contrast between this piece of Dresden China and yet this passionate, passionate woman who really channels so many feelings for the audience about 1950s sexuality. Oh, he was so smart about that. There's a really funny story that I heard where he says on set one day to Grace Kelly, am I shocking you? Because he's sort of like being vulgar and being mischievous. And she said, I went to Catholic girls school (laughs) and we talked about all of this. None of this shocks me. Maybe that's why they get on because he went to Catholic boys school. He was educated by the Jesuits who knew a thing or two about repression. Yeah. And, and you know, she was really she was really powerful with him. You know, she said, no, I think we should do it this way. She would often say how how she felt she would, could be filmed and how she felt she should dress. And there were these really, you know, it's a really incredible collaboration. She's I think she's more than his muse. I think they are generally collaborating. I just I think that she, he really he really was inspired to to move further in his investigation of a woman and his investigation of women on screen, which is really complexly done. And it's just really sad that they only did three films together, that, that there was no way he could tempt her out of retirement. And in fact, Prince Rainier wouldn't have it anyway. 
Well, you mentioned Prince Rainier. Let's move into the princess part of the Princess Grace episode. How did Grace Kelly meet Prince Rainier? Well, Prince Rainier and Grace Kelly met when she was in France for the Cannes Film Festival. And there had been various attempts to try and get them together. And she'd been a bit unsure. And then she was invited to a photo shoot at the palace. He was actually a bit late to the photo shoot. He showed her around the palace, showed her the private zoo. And she was dating another man at the time. I don't think she was particularly thrilled necessarily either way. But they started corresponding. They wrote letters. And the courtship developed but it wasn't completely romantic because he was on the lookout for an American actress and he was on yes. the lookout. And I hear that there was that Aristotle Anassis was drawing up a list of movie stars for Rainier's potential wives. It's tougher jobs, aren't there? <laughs> yeah. 100%. I mean, imagine, you know, which movie star would you like to marry, this one or this one? <laughs> and what was so, the big idea, though? Like, why, why a movie star? Was there some sort of uh, ulterior motive in that? Well, Prince Rainier came to the throne when he was 25 and his country, Monaco, the prince state, was bankrupt. It had depended on the casino and the casino had been battered by World War II and really other casinos had taken over. So what he did was he thought, this is a cunning, what I'm going to do. I'm going to make Monaco into this tax haven, which he did. Aristotle Onassis arrived because he rather likes a tax haven. And Onassis said, you've got to get the casino big and popular and glamorous. And the way to do that is to marry an American actress. So she brings in all her glamorous friends. So it really was a business idea. It was Mm. putting Monaco on the map because in post-war Europe, Europe was indebted, suffering. There was no money. But what, what country had money and what tourists had money? That was the Americans. So this is, it's all a business idea, really, to put money into the uh, uh, the casino. And Aristotle Anassi says, you've got to marry an American actress. And the first one he comes up with is, guess who the first one he comes up with is? Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe, you got it, yes. He comes up with Marilyn Monroe, who calls him Prince Reindeer. (laughs) And and she says, give me give me three days with him and he'll want to marry me. But but she did say no. I think she really did see that her 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 life in a role in a princess in quite a small principality was not for her. And then he says he's looking around and and Grace Kelly has suggested to him, and of course. The wonderful thing about Grace Kelly is that she's a Catholic and this is a Catholic country. So she's brought up in this Catholic family. She seems perfect. So they correspond for a year and then he comes to see her and her family and very quickly he proposes to her Uh. and they get engaged. So it's, it's not... We don't have to wonder why he asked her to marry him. She's just a perfect princess. She's a Catholic and she's this movie star that Anassis wants. But why did she marry him? I think that's more of a question. That is my question because she's at the peak of her Hollywood stardom right now. And why would she want to leave that behind? Or did she think she wasn't leaving it behind, that she could do both? She is so beautiful. She's won an Oscar. She's Hitchcock's you know, collaborator, muse. It's fantastic. Yeah. She's got everything she could possibly imagine. And I think there are a few reasons why she says yes to Prince Rainier. I, I mean, they don't know each other very well. Of course, yeah. you'd be entranced by this wonderful prince. And she has had her heart broken by quite a lot of cynical Hollywood men. And here's Prince Rainier saying, be my princess, marvellous. I've only yeah. met you a few times and you're just amazing. So that's obviously very entrancing. <laughs> that's my favourite kind of relationship right there. Yeah, exactly. It's a love bomb. It's <laughs> a love bomb. 
love balm. Yeah, don't ask any deeper questions. Let's just stick with the the surface because yeah. that is delicious. Just it's lick all it, splendid. L- lick it and love it. <laughs> lick away, I love it. And I think <laughs> there's always this craving. I would say. For parental approval, for, for fatherly approval, oh. and of course, her father was delighted by the idea of the match. Oh, really? So he, the ju- judgy dad comes judgy around. Dad. Okay, you've got an Oscar, but now you're going to be a princess. And there's these engagement photos of her parents, they with Grace and Rainier looking at the ring, and I mean, they look like they're about to explode. <laughs> it's a big <laughs> ring, is it? I imagine he's it's not going to shine the ring. It is a beautiful ring. I mean, she looks beautiful, and I mean, she is. Fantastic. And I, I, I think also she she also I think there was some concern within her. She said that she had noticed that the older you get in Hollywood, you start to be having to be called earlier and earlier for the makeup chair. And that was <laughs> she was 26. She was, uh, yeah. I know. I know. And she, uh, and, and she looks 18, but she yeah. was worried about aging and worried about aging out and you can see when when she's being 22 and being paired with these men who are 50 why she's worried that when she's 28 no one will want her anymore you can it makes sense doesn't it so I think these are all things all together that that concern her and I think she did love Rainier as well she was entranced by him finally he was a man who wanted to marry her and I, I think you know she knew that Ordinary men were, were overwhelmed by her fame. She couldn't marry an ordinary man. And sure. all the famous men didn't seem to want to marry her. So Rainier was a man who wouldn't be intimidated by her fame, by her by her beauty. And who and I think also she was a fifties girl. She was no matter how, how much she how she had rebelled in so many ways and how she had been she really changed what was expected of a woman. In the end she's a fifties girl and your ambitions are about marriage and children. Ugh. sorry that just that that that, that wasn't supposed to be my outside voice however you're saying you're selling us this story kate that prince rainier is all all about you know making her his princess and marrying her and committing himself however there is kind of a horrible story about him demanding that the parents throw down a dowry what is this there are two rather unpleasant demands. And number one is a diary, and number two is a fertility test, an invasive fertility test. So these are two unpleasant demands. Yes, the Prince Rainier says, actually, I'd like a diary, and I'd like a diary of two million dollars. Two Two million. Is he not minted as a prince? I I might be naive would. You would say... I mean, you would. I mean, number one, dowries have gone out quite a long time ago in the Victorian right. period, and he is so wealthy. And you know, so really, he springs this on the family. Ugh. And Grace's father is horrified. Grace's father—he's okay. a successful businessman. He's not the kind of man to give away millions of dollars. Right? He says, "My daughter doesn't need to pay anyone to marry her." He really does no. defend her. But Grace really wants to marry Rainier, and Ugh. she makes an agreement that she will give a lot of her money. What? So money. Oh, I know it's getting worse. She's it's getting paying, worse. She's paying this man. She's paying a small, mustachioed man. A small, mustachioed man in some insignificant country. Okay, now I'm, country. I'm coming down hard <laughs> on this so-called prince. It is, you know, so nearly half of it, we believe, is her own money that she earned from her work. And the other half is paid by her father, who never, who always resents Rainier over it. He's not happy. And, you know, Grace is being invited there to create business opportunities to a large degree. So why should she have to... Right. Hey, but on one, the the only benefit of all of this to poor Grace's father, who's not pleased, is the fact that he doesn't have to pay for the wedding because <laughs> it is a big MGM. Grace is contracted to MGM. 
Uh, so the, how she pays them off is they say, okay, we'll release you from your contract, but the wedding has to be the biggest film ever. It has to be the most giant film of all time. So, so at it's least, a production. It's a production. At least that saves uh, the Kelly family some money. But you can really see, uh, you know, it's a real shock to them. And also, you know, Grace Kelly is forced to undergo a fertility test to ensure that she can have an heir because this is so important. And it's So they're, ob- ha- they're having a little, a close look at her eggs to make sure that uh, she's going to come up with the goods. And she knows if she fails this, no deal. And certainly uh, Rainier has had a long-term mistress before, a French film actress, and she was subjected to this fertility test and and failed it. And the marriage didn't happen. She later married someone else and had a daughter. So the doctors clearly didn't know what they were, what they were doing. But, uh, but so this, this idea that women are there to have to be, have this invasive test uh, is really, I think, very distressing. So let's talk about the wedding the dress, the media coverage, because this was a sensation. The wedding of Grace Kelly and Prince Rainier is a gigantic production. It is a sensation, just as you say, Katie, and it's an MGM production. The dress is made by an MGM designer, the incredibly talented designer, Helen Rose. The, The MGM hairstylist comes over. Everything, it's all about the show. In fact, what is very striking to watch it now in terms of a royal wedding and a 1950s wedding is how sheer the veil is. The veil is so sheer, it barely it barely sort of veils anything. And that was because they wanted a good shot for the TV cameras, because it was going to be this gigantic production that, in fact, Rainier called a circus. It was huge. So instantly she is thrust into a brand new, completely different life as a royal. How did Grace Kelly cope? Well, I think it was very difficult for her. And I think later on, Prince Rainier did say it was difficult for her. It was it was a very it was although the society was thrilled, they welcomed her. They were overwhelmed with excitement. It really was quite a closed society. And I think it was difficult for her to be accepted initially. But really, in terms of being a princess, she ticked off all the jobs. She gave birth to her first child, Princess Caroline, the year after the wedding. Then she had an heir in Prince Albert in 1958, who's currently Albert of Monaco, and another another child in 1965. And she really involves herself in philanthropic work. She does so much in terms of charity for the Red Cross. She sets these big balls and and, uh, uh, and does, does so much for the arts and for the Princess Great Foundation. But it is difficult for her. She really wants, she misses acting. And Alfred Hitchcock, he offers Marnie to her, but there's all this outcry in Monaco. You know, you can't have our princess playing playing a sort of criminal. Oh, because Marnie, the role of Marnie was a shoplifter, and yeah, she, she's, 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 she sort of loses her marbles a little bit. Like there's some psychological element, and it's really hard for Grace to have to say that that's. I have to give it up. And really, I, I, I'm living in Monaco in this way for the rest of my life. And I think that, you know, she does perform par excellence. She's a performer. Sure. She's fantastic. But it really comes at the cost of a lot of pain. And there is a great story that Princess Diana meets Princess Grace. Oh. And Princess Diana is its very early on. She's just embarking on her new role. And she's really upset. She's found it very distressing, the press intrusion. And she's very upset, uh, privately very upset at this, this gala. And Princess Grace says to her, don't worry, it'll get a lot worse. Ha! Mm. Dark. Dark. It is ha- dark. Fr- uh, harsh but fair. Who are Princess Grace's friends, Kate? 
because the palace in Monaco, for those who haven't seen it, is almost like a fairy tale palace. It's on top of the cliffs and you have the sea on three sides and you are pretty isolated. And the only other people in Monaco generally are either millionaires or the people who the millionaires are employing to service their daily lives. And the poodles. And the poodles. Well, we love the poodle. Uh, it is it is very hard for greys to make friends. And, and, and the society, they are very much a, a society in which they would have expected Prince Rainier to marry from within them. And of course, they see the benefit she brings. And some of our Hollywood's friends come and see her. They, 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 they keep in touch. But their lives are different now. And it is a it is a, it is a life in which she, she does feel quite isolated. And later on, she does apparently say to someone who reports it that uh, she's she's being interviewed for a documentary, and they say to her, "But you're you're not really giving us much." And she says, "Well, well I don't mean to, but it's just so difficult because a lot of the women don't like me, and they can criticise me here. So I have to be very very careful about what I say and what I do." I think she felt she was always being watched. So what you do see later in life when her, her children are older. You do see her spending quite a lot of time in Paris inc- increasingly, uh, really because I think she sometimes does find life in Monaco quite hard. It's it's a palace that you are quite isolated in and the society can be one in which all eyes seem to be on you. And when yes. you're used to the relative, when you're used to being, when this is a woman who's, as we say, was dancing in the Barbers Inn Hotel, having a lot of freedom in Hollywood to to really do what she wanted, take the role she wanted, yeah. go out for dinner with who she wanted. Now, everything that you do is completely circumscribed. It is for all royals, but I think it's particularly so in Monaco. Yeah, and so it must be very stifling. And yet, in her later years... I understand she did manage to sneak in her need to perform. She supported the arts and she she did a little uh, on again, off again tour where she was performing poetry. So, I mean, I find that quite melancholic and heartrending, Kate, that she's just like uh, disguising her need to reveal her talent. This is it, that... The, everyone says, oh, Grace, it's your best ever role. Oh, Grace, you're the princess now. And she played it to perfection. She was a fantastic. She did everything that they could have wanted in terms of turning Monaco into this rather fabulous place. Somerset Maugham called Monaco a sunny place for shady people. But with <laughs> Grace as princess, it seems pure. It seems lovely. It seems American as apple pie. And in fact, she did host a year, this must have been fun, an American week in Monaco where the guests would play baseball and eat ice cream. So she had this, uh, this, this, you know, she really did create a lot of wonderful social occasions. She was really, you know, very inspiring in terms of her charity work, in terms of what she did for children, in terms of what she did for for the arts and and all the work she did. And, And what's really sad is that as she moves into the latter phase of her life, in her in her forties, coming into her fifties, she's had the children, she's proved herself, she starts to do more and more of the work she loves. Just as you were saying, Katie, the performance. She starts to do a bit more work in terms of voicing over documentaries. She publishes a book of about flowers and there's this independent film about flowers that Grace voices over. Uh, so she's really starting to move, I think, into back into performance. Yes, sure. she'll never she'll never be the ingenue in a in a movie again, and she'll never be an actor in a movie again, but she's starting to move really more towards becoming an actor to, to working with her own acting skills. And that's why it's so sad that we lose her so early. And before we get to the end 
of Princess Grace. What do you know about her relationship with her husband? How were they managing after that uh, very highly negotiated beginning with the dowry? Because that must have left a little bit of a sour taste, I would have thought. Well, I think that the romance of the wedding, the romance of the welcome, all the excitement, it, it swept her up into it. But I think it was quite difficult in the early days because it was such a change. One minute you're a glamorous young lady in New York. Next minute you're in a rather isolated palace with with rituals and setups that are really arcane and quite hard to penetrate. And you have no idea what's really going on. And really, uh, Rainier had had mistresses. He had a very long affair with Elizabeth Taylor. He started having an affair Ooh. with her on her honeymoon in Monaco, which is... <gasps> <laughs> yes. With Burton, or and then the other ones. No, uh, with Conrad Hilton, who wasn't the best husband, so we don't have to feel sorry for him. He, was a very, very, he, was a, he wasn't a good guy. But, uh, but, uh, but Elizabeth Taylor did not want to marry Prince Rainier, and of course it would be very difficult for him to marry a divorced woman anyway. You know, Rainier had his own life. He had friends, he, he had his own life there, and it was difficult for Grace to create her own, own 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 world, and this is a woman who'd been really good friends with Ava Gardner. I mean, what you know, she likes exciting, flamboyant ladies. I mean, this is not really what she's going to find in in high society, uh, high society aristocratic Europe. Does Grace have any side dishes of herself? I think the the fairy tale, of course, would suggest that Grace and Prince Rainier were happy ever after and Grace was a wonderful princess and she smiled in the pictures and it was all splendid. And I think we don't really know necessarily what happened behind closed doors. But one of my favourite photos, I have to say, is that, well, it's about Grace and Jackie and JFK. So it's very interesting. When, uh, when... When John, when JFK was in hospital, because he was had this back surgery, he had all this back pain, didn't he? Uh, Jackie, his wife, thought that it might cheer him up to have Grace Kelly go and visit him in 1954. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I just uh, this is kind of up there for me with um, Edward Edward VIII's mistress saying to Wallace Simpson, "I'm going away on holiday. Would you mind looking after him while I'm away?" I mean, these, you know, I I I feel I wouldn't do it, but 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 so she said that. You know, well, you know, JFK is a bit up, a bit sad, a bit under the weather in hospital. Would you go and cheer him up, Grace? And Grace said, "Oh, I'll go and cheer him up." And you know, she's at the peak of her beauty. She's single. She's glamorous, and she dressed as a nurse uh, when she went to see him. So, what? <laughs> yes, must have been rather a rather a, a rather a, an entrancing moment for JFK. I think. Well. We often think about JFK and happy birthday, Mr. President. But mm. I think this might be also a, a private tribute he enjoyed also. Oh. And, uh, and, and what's interesting is that, of course, they met later when she was Princess of Monaco. They, they had a reception. And there's this fantastic photo of Grace Kelly and the, the president together. And she really is looking at him. And you really think, my goodness, she has such magnetic eyes. And, and certainly, I think her magnetism, her glamour, her grace, she kept it through. And there were many men who fell in love with her overnight, even when she was Princess of Monaco. Yeah, so we're looking at this photograph you're referring to in the studio. And it's very interesting because it's obviously <laughs> taken at the White House and it's a, a state event. So you see Jackie Kennedy and you see Prince Rainier standing there at attention looking at the camera. And then and and you see JFK is gesturing maybe to a, a reporter off camera. And then you see Grace Kelly looking with through lowered lashes 
and with a very mischievous, knowing smile playing about her lips. It's amazing. We'll, we'll put this photo on our social feeds, Katie. It's, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? It's mind-blowing. It? And I mean, that is a... I don't like that hat at all. I know it was very fashionable yeah, she, at the time, but I she can't... She has a very uh, complicated hat on. I can't yes. bear that hat. But even in that hat, she looks like the most seductive, glamorous yes. lady, despite having what looks like a giant white dishcloth on her head. Well, uh, it's it, like an exploding turban. <laughs> Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. So let's talk about the day she died. What happened? It's such a tragedy. Grace, she's only 52, and she's driving back to Monaco from her country house. And she and Princess Stephanie are in the car together, and they're driving down on this really, it's a very steep, winding road, quite hard to drive on. And she loses control of her car, and they, they, they fall down the mountainside. But Stephanie, she's with her. She's in the passenger seat. Stephanie survives. She tries to get control of the car. She can't. Stephanie survives. And the princess is taken to the hospital. She has terrible, terrible injuries. And she does die the following night. Uh, Rainier makes the decision that it's not going to be possible for her to come back. So so they do decide to turn off the machine. And So and she's on she's on life support. It's terrible. She? It's terrible. Yeah. So so we don't know exactly what happened. Why did she lose control of the car? There were all kinds of ideas. Maybe she was arguing with Stephanie, who was quite a rebellious teenager. But there are there there is I think it's very likely that this, is, this seems to be the very accepted opinion that she suffered a very small stroke while she was mm. driving and lost control of the car. And simply the fact was it Perhaps it had been on a more straightforward road, she would have been okay. But she just went off the side and crashed down 120 foot of, of mountain foot. And, and it was just really heartbreaking. And I think uh, there are often conspiracy theories. And, and one reason I think why there were conspiracy theories is because the palace was so in shock that they yeah. didn't really issue an honest assessment of what was going on initially. Initially, everyone just thought it was quite minor injuries. So then everyone said, well, why, why she died? They, they couldn't really uh, sort of, no one, Prince Rainier, the palace, they were also in shock that the, the, certainly the initial dealings with the press were very opaque. And I think that did sometimes fuel the conspiracy theories. But in the end, this was just a, a terrible tragedy, a minor stroke. She lost control of her car. She was otherwise a very good driver. And Stefan is just 17. She has had quite a rocky relationship with her father and mother. They do argue. Whether or not they were arguing at this point, we don't know, but they do argue. So imagine how hard that must be for her. She's desperately trying to get control of the car. They're dry, diving over the side. Oh. And she's there while her mother is not is really fatally injured. And it's it's really heartbreaking. And, and Rainier is utterly heartbroken. They have a, a big funeral. And it's very interesting. Princess Diana 
just said, I must go to the funeral. Princess Diana is only just married to Prince Charles. And it, it, she says, I want to go. And the royal family are like, well, we don't, it wouldn't really work that way. It's not really protocol. And Princess Diana says, I insist. I want to go to the funeral. Grace Kelly was kind to me when I was just starting out and I want to go pay my respects. So Good she's determined her. to go. And it's a, a big funeral. Um, Carrie Grant is there, you know, always, always loved Grace. Nancy Reagan and, and, you know, the Empress of Iran. People come from all over the world and it's such a shock because everyone's in love with the idea of Princess Grace, the, the princess. And it is tragic, as I was saying, that she's just finally... As also often happens with many women who give, she gave over her uh, younger years to childbearing and, and, and now she's out there thinking, I might come back a little bit to, to voiceover, to performance, to poetry, to the arts. And, and it's cut short when she's just so young, she's just 52 and Prince Rainier is, is heartbroken and he never remarries. You know, she, Grace dies in 1982 and Prince Rainier never remarries. He dies in 2005 and is buried beside her. A very eerie foreshadowing Katie, of what was to happen to Diana herself yes. all those years later. Yeah, with the whole car thing and also with the the opaqueness from the palace afterward, you know, when they wouldn't admit that Diana had, had in fact died in mm. that car crash. It was huge news around the world, wasn't it, Kate, when it happened, the accident? It was beamed around the world. People were obsessed with Grace Kelly. They were obsessed with Grace Kelly, the Monaco's, the family. If her job had been to put Monaco on the map, it did. And Monaco is really quite a tiny place, a built-up place. And it, thanks to that wedding, thanks to Grace, it became one of the most celebrated places in Europe. Everyone talked about it. They talked about Grace. She was one of the most famous women in the world. And so her tragic early death, people couldn't believe it. It was an outpouring of grief across Monaco, across France, across the world. And Hollywood were just overwhelmed. They thought this was their fairy tale princess. She'd gone off to live happily ever after. And, and here she was dying this tragic early death. Of course, just like so many actresses did, you know, just like Monroe died a tragic early death. And here you have Grace Kelly just killed by, by, a, by a stroke of fate. And any echoes too for you, Kate, in the way that some sections of the media have treated Meghan Markle? I think that with Meghan Markle, we saw this obsessive invasion of her life. We saw every princess has suffered, Grace, Princess Diana, uh, the invasion, the investigation, the, the uh, talking about what they look like, what they wear. But Meghan had racism on top of that. So you have this constant obsession with her being not quite right, the, the, the excluder, the racist language being used about her. And what other royals get away with, what other royals are even congratulated for. Meghan and Harry were attacked for. So all royals live in a in a crown property and, and, and that's renovated and, 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 and sort of repaired with crown millions. That's what all royals do. And no one really said anything before. And then suddenly when Harry and Meghan take Frogmore Cottage and have... Uh, and it's renovated with crown money that's some kind of massive scandal so you really see this very unfair treatment of princesses they simply can't win and Meghan being both an American a movie star just like Grace Kelly also being black she was constantly treated as an outsider and so there choice uh, their, their, their need was to escape and but that was something Grace couldn't do. And what fascinates me is when I have sometimes said, isn't it interesting that Meghan is, is sort of said to people, she's an ultimate actress. She's always playing a role. 
And no one said that about Grace. And I, I said this on social media and everyone said, well, Grace Kelly was a real proper actress. Megan was Ugh. just in some kind of TV drama. And it really shows that, that you cannot win and that people were shocked that I could compare Grace Kelly with Megan because, of course, Grace Kelly, I think people were saying, oh, we were just shocked because Grace Kelly is the ultimate pure white woman and, 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 and Megan is the black woman. And, and as we see society's sexism writ large through the princess, through Princess Diana, through Princess Grace, we see society's racism and sexism writ large through Meghan. And really, you can see why it's increasingly hard for princes to find wives these days, because simply <laughs> so many women, they think, why would I want to do that? They, yes. we're, all on, we're, we're all on the Marilyn Monroe side. We're like, okay, Hollywood's bad, Hollywood's exploitative, the men are dreadful, but I'll stick with that. Thank you. It seems to me also you're talking about what the public is needing from people in this position. Also, they're getting something out of it. It seems that there's a very satisfying narrative in somebody in Princess Grace's position, somebody who is beautiful, somebody who is wealthy, somebody who is privileged, talented, is married to a prince, has a whole kingdom at their disposal, and still can't be happy. People love that shit. Yes. Thank you, Professor Kate Williams, for bringing to life the tragic, torrid, and yet so glamorous life of Grace Kelly, Princess Grace. Interesting thing about Princess Grace is that she is the perfect combination of a living cliché and also the ultimate paradox. Mm. Did you find yourself, Katie, as we listened to Kate, did you find yourself thinking, would I like to have been... Grace? I think old Grace missed a trick. I think she should have just had a dalliance with the prince and then skedaddled back to the US of A and done a few more movies with Hitch. Maybe she could have opened a thoroughbred horse farm or maybe a ballet school and just done her own thing. Doesn't need the dowry. Doesn't need to spend time with this small mustachioed man from which is a place which is fundamentally the south of France. Fundamentally, she could, she, yeah, she could have kept that $2 million for herself and done something really fun with it. So I think Billy could not escape mentioning her because she did really sum up the aspiration of a certain section of American women at the time. Talking about aspiration of a certain sector of American women, Katie, next week we are talking about Peyton Place, oh. one of the most controversial books slash films slash TV programs of the era. I'm looking forward to reading slash watching it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you would like a podcast to listen to, in the meantime, let us tell you about Alan Cumming's shelves. Join the wonderful actor Alan Cumming as he takes you through the stories of his life through the most curious and strange objects on his shelves. He's joined by some pretty frisky friends like Sir Ian McKellen, who pops in to talk about a dog collar. Monica Lewinsky discusses an awards evening, and Sam Mendes joins Alan to reminisce about cabaret, those theater days they shared. The stories are hilarious, so go and search for Alan Cummings Shelves on your podcast app. Oh, and don't forget, please follow us at Spread That Fire on all the socials and subscribe. Tom, I know you're probably going to judge me because I do have a little bit of a shopping problem, but I am a little overexcited that we didn't start the fire is having our own merch. So yes. just an opportunity to buy, buy, buy. Now, I really hope that it's an opportunity to clutter my tiny, tiny little home with lots of little things that commemorate 
my job. But to start with, we're talking tea towels. Now, not really sure what's on the tea towels. Could be damp cloth utopia. That makes the most sense. But I'm really hoping Pedenda Power will be creeping onto a few of these textile products. Let it creep. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern whales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England Podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.